tend to know who we are apart from what we do. But we're not human doings. We are human beings. And that makes what's going on in our world and how we are finding our identity a huge problem. Think about how unstable we would be if we completely found our identity, if we were defined by what we do. What happens if you can't do that anymore? What happens if you uh, imagine you're just no good at it or you hate it? I have a friend who's uh, went all the way through dental school, graduated, and was a dentist for a year and hated it, absolutely hated it, went back to school and became a chiropractor. And he told me that in that in-between phase, he had spent his whole life, or not his whole life, but you know, a large portion of his life going to school, going to college, and he had a crisis at the end. Or maybe you hear these stories about professional athletes who retire, uh, especially like NFL players, right? And you retire from the NFL, you get out of it, and now you're a car salesman, or you open a restaurant, and all of a sudden, all that identity that you had built your life upon is left back there on the field. Your, your best days, your, who you saw yourself as is in your past. It's in your rearview mirror. And now, what am I living for? Who am I? Our identity's in the past. What's left to look forward to? So let me ask you a question as we launch into this series. Simple question. I want you to think about it. It's rhetorical, so don't shout out an answer. Who are you? Who are you? Do, do you know? Do you have a rock-solid identity? And if you do, is who you believe you are in line with who God says you are? If you know what God says about who you are and you look at your life, is it actually showing that you believe that, that you're living in line with it? How much of your identity comes from your creator versus how much have you adapted from the culture and what people around you have said is valuable? Or from people you admire or from people you want to be like? One of my favorite quotes is from Oscar Wilde. He says, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. Wow. Like, if that's true, then most people that we pass by on the street may think they know who they are, but they may have no idea actually who they are. And we act like it, but actually, if many of us, I think, dug deep down to the foundation, the bedrock of our identity, and started saying, what is my identity built upon? Maybe it would be our pasts. Maybe it would be our cultural experiences. Maybe some of us would view who we are based on what we do. But when human beings don't know who they are or when the identity that we build our lives on isn't founded upon what our creator says about us or when we know what God says about us but we aren't living in line, to, uh, in line with it, we end up living unstable lives. And what we need more than anything else is to know who we are, that what God says about us is true and that nothing can change it. And this text that we read so beautifully lays a foundation for identity. And our series over the next few weeks is gonna kind of flow from this whole idea so that we can allow God to speak into our lives, so that we can challenge the notions of what we've built our life upon, not out of fear, but out of peace and joy and and the love that we know the Father has for us. Okay, so this isn't a scary journey. This is a hopeful journey over the next few weeks. I'm excited about it. But this text assumes three things. 
or rather it makes three points. It assumes a gospel foundation. That's point one. It builds up our gospel identity and it shows us how to get the power we need to live a gospel life. So let's talk about the gospel foundation. When I say this text assumes a gospel foundation, here's what I mean. This chapter, this chapter is about the church and it assumes everything in chapter one because we're in First uh, Peter chapter two. And by the way, when Peter wrote this letter, as, as many of you probably know, when Peter or John or Paul or any of the New Testament writers write a letter, there weren't chapters and verses, right? And so when they write a letter, they assume that you're going to start with uh, dear so-and-so and end with a sincerely yours, right? You're gonna read the whole letter in its entirety. So in order to really understand what Peter's saying here in chapter two, we've got to just quickly jump back into chapter one and a couple things of what he says about the gospel, because this chapter assumes what Peter's saying about the gospel. So I need to remind you of what chapter one says. It says some amazing things. Um, Verse 10 through 12 of chapter one, it says this, the gospel is the word of grace into which angels long to look. It's so powerful that angels long to look into it. And then verse 22 and 23 of chapter one, it actually says the gospel is the imperishable seed by which we're born again. The gospel is so powerful. It's so life transforming that just to believe it, just to accept it, brings about such radical change that the Bible calls it a new birth. Think about that. Paul says in Romans 1, he says, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? Power, yeah, dudamos. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So notice a couple things that Paul says. He doesn't say that the gospel brings the power of God. He doesn't say the gospel leads us to the power of God. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for what? Salvation. And you don't just stop there. It's not just that the gospel changes your life when you first believe it, but it's the power of God that keeps saving you. From faith, that's the past. For faith, that's the future. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the present. So the gospel is a continuous reality in your life. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. In theology, we call that justification, just as if I've never sinned. I've been saved from sin's penalty, but every day now, as I believe the gospel, I'm still being saved from sin's power in my life. That's called sanctification. And one day we have this hope in the future that we will ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin, that's called glorification. Are you tracking? So how we're saved is by faith. Faith in the good news. Faith in what Jesus has done. Faith in the finished work of Christ. And that means we don't ever move beyond the gospel to something else. We just move deeper into the gospel. Does that make sense? Or maybe rather we could say the gospel moves deeper into us. Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs of our faith. The gospel is the A to the Z, and everything in between. You don't come to God by faith in the gospel and then move beyond faith into works and fixing yourself and getting your life straight. That's what Paul writes the entire book of Galatians to the church about because they moved past the gospel and now they're trying to be justified by their works. And he says, no, you don't ever move past the gospel. You move deeper into it. So the Christian life isn't about 
pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting your butt in line. The Christian life is about surrendering and trusting God with more and more of your life. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, I remember I was walking, a little picture of this, uh, through Seaport Village. We have all the crazy, awesome people in Seaport Village, the sword swallowers and the fire breathers. And there's that guy with the didgeridoo that can play Michael Jackson songs with cymbals on his knees. You know, you're like, my man's pulling it off right now, you know? <laughs> and uh, one of my f- favorite people, it was, uh, every once in a while, the guy's there, he's the plate spinner. Have you guys seen him? So he, he, he takes a plate, takes a stick, stick down, spins the plate in the centrifugal force or centripetal? One of those forces keeps the plate spinning. As long, as long as it's spinning, it keeps standing, you know? And then he'll put another stick down, put another plate on it, and start spinning it. And he has to go back and forth and spin the plates. And pretty soon he's got like 15 plates spinning in the crowds around going, you know, but it's nerve-wracking watching the guy because you know one of those plates is going to fall over and crash, right? But he doesn't, right? And that's why he makes, you know, like $5 from every kid who's sitting around in front of their parents and guilted into giving him a tip. But... I started thinking, I was like, man, so many of us, that is Christianity for us. We come to God through faith and we have this vibrant new life. And then somebody comes to us and says something good, which is true. Hey man, are you reading your Bible? Like, oh, am I supposed to do that in order to be a good Christian? That's what good Christians do, right? So you pull open the Bible and you put your Bible reading plate down and you start spinning it. And somebody else is like, hey man, are you praying? I don't know that I'm praying enough, but the prayer's plate down, start spinning it, and then the missionaries show up at church, and their teeth are rotten from living in the jungle, and they're saying, we just need some more money. You know, if you gave a dollar, it would save 1,500 people, and you're like, I just want you to have toothpaste, you know, so I could give up a latte, so you put your giving plate down, and you start spinning it, and pretty soon, you're like that guy in Seaport Village, and you're running around, and you're just spinning plates like crazy, and what inevitably happens? So, yeah, and then the whole thing comes crashing down. I'm a failure. I'm not really a good Christian. We start to believe somehow subtly that our identity comes from our works. It's, um, it's, it's amazing how subtle it can be. It's kind of like if you go out on, on, and, and you're going on a trip on a boat somewhere to Catalina or something, and you know, um, you're, you're just a degree off at the beginning. It doesn't really show up. You don't really notice it. But when you're supposed to be landing in port at Catalina and you're 50 nautical miles off and you see a storm coming and no land in sight, you start getting worried, right? And many of us actually in our faith, many of us find ourselves there. We started just a a degree off, just started the gospel plus something, right? Just, Just a little bit. And pretty soon we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, no land in sight. And we're trying to figure out what happened. Where's this abundant life that Christ promised? But when you realize that you're saved, as he says in this passage, from the first to the last by the gospel, it'll free you from the moralistic load that so many of us labor under. When you realize it's not about what you do, but about what's been done for you. When you realize it's not about work, it's about faith. And yes, faith without works is dead. But ultimately, this is a journey of faith. That If you want freedom from addictive patterns and sin, and if you want freedom from broken negative emotions and depression and anxiety, and if you want freedom from the bondage 
of the lies that may have your life bound, it comes by believing the truth of who God is. The Bible says, Jesus says in John 8, they will know the truth and the truth will set them, yeah, set them free. It's the belief in the truth that sets our life free. As you take the gospel deeper and deeper into your heart and life, you change and grow more and more. And there's example after example of this in scripture. So many, I can't give them all. Just give you a little cascade, um, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. In Galatians 2, there's this epic throwdown between Peter and Paul, two founding fathers of the faith in this corner. Paul, no, but it's like, it's pretty epic. Um, and so there's this place where Paul confronts Peter because Peter's this guy who's grown up in a, in a group within Judaism that doesn't eat with Gentiles. So now he's a father of the church, he's an apostle, and he's still not eating with Gentiles, especially when the Judaizers and those that he's trying to impress come into town. And Paul gets in his face, and what, what's he say to him? He says, in Galatians 2.4, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What's Paul doing? Paul knows that Peter knows the gospel. He knows it up here, but his heart hasn't really fully grasped onto it. He's still got this racial superiority thing, this man-pleasing thing going on in his life. So Paul does, what, what he does is he takes the gospel and he helps like move it deeper into Peter's heart. You notice Paul doesn't say, he doesn't push him toward behavior modification. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, if you were a good Christian, you would eat with Gentiles. He doesn't point him even to a, a verse on racism and say, hey, you know what? If you want to be a good Christian, you can't be a racist. There's a no racism verse, right? Those are in there. But what's he do? He calls him to live in line with the gospel because once you have the right belief, the right behavior will flow from it. Are we tracking? Okay. Driving the gospel deeper and deeper down will, will change us. Right belief leads to right behavior. Believing the truth sets us free from the lies that we've believed. The writers of the New Testament motivate the church the same way. There's kind of four questions that we see that every epistle kind of walks through. You ever notice that every epistle starts off with tons of theology about who God is? And then the letters in the New Testament, they'll get to what God's done for us and the good news of the gospel. And then it doesn't just jump straight to how we're supposed to live. There's always a piece in there where the New Testament author starts talking about who we are now in Christ. It doesn't say, do these things in order to become a son or daughter of God. It says, well, let's look. Let's look um, at, at just one example. I wish I had more time. First John 3. Let's read this and think about these four questions. Who is God? What's he done? Who are we? How do we live? Think about those four questions. I'll throw them up after this. But as you, as you read this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it did not know him. So dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All of us who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he's pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared, that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No, so no one continues to sin either 
has seen him or have known him. Just think about that. John's main point is, hey guys, we got to stop sinning. But what does he do? Does he just say, hey guys, stop sinning? Is that it? Is that, that would be a very short letter. What's he do? He says, he answers the question, who is, who is God? who's God in this text? How does this text reveal God? Father. And what's he done for us in Christ? He's lavished his love on us and called us children. And according to this, he says, beloved, now we're children of God. Not tomorrow, not when you get your act together, not one day when Christ returns after the resurrection and you're perfect. Right now, you're children of God. Therefore, how do we live? Purifying ourselves as he is pure, not continuing in sin. Our good works aren't motivated by some identity we can get if we work hard enough. The good work that God has for us, his purposes are motivated by the person he's made us in Christ. Amen? It's so important that we get this because if we don't get this, what we'll do is we'll move past the gospel into workspace Christianity. And we'll measure how good of a person we are. We'll get into that good day, bad day Christianity. You know, you have the good day where you're driving to work and everything, like the birds are singing. It's that Cinderella moment, you know? And then the, the next day, the coffee machine's broke and that guy cuts you off and give him the universal sign for one God. And, <laughs> and then you're like, you get to work and oh, I'm a failure, I'm a bad Christian. You guys ever get into that good day, bad day Christianity? The gospel will free you from that. There's more and more. I'm going to skip some of this for time's sake. But what we do flows from who we are. I'll just say this real quick. This is the oldest lie in the book. Literally, you go back to the garden. God creates man in his image. Remember that? And, he said, and then he gives him something to do out of this new identity. But what's the serpent come and do? The serpent comes and says, hey, would you like to be like God? Would you like to be as God's? If you do this, if you eat the fruit, then you will become as God's. Oldest lie in the book. Your identity can flow from you doing something with your life. If you would just do this, then you would have the respect. Then you would be a fully formed person. Then you would have a reason for existence. It's the oldest lie in the book. And that's why I love what these New Testament writers come saying because they say what we do flows from who we are. We don't work to get, we worked out of what we've already gotten because of Christ's work for us. Our person comes from, our purpose comes from our person. I just want to say this too. Um, As we go through Purpose Driven Life, just a side note, uh, it's a great book. But here's the deal. One of the things that our hearts can do, and this isn't the author's intent, this is just ours. What we can do is we can say, hey man, I better do all these purposes in order to be a good Christian. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are sons and daughters. We are family. We are worshipers. And we're going to walk through that in a second. Therefore, these purposes flow from the person God's made us to be. That sound good? So that's why we're doing this series with Purpose Driven Life at the same time to just make sure everybody's grounded and rooted in the gospel and not trying to work your butt off to prove yourself to God or anybody else. Amen? You're now children of God. Yeah, sometimes my kids act more like my kids than others. They do. Yeah, sometimes they're so angelic and they're just like me. (laughs) 
And other times, not so much, right? But guess what? They're still my kids. I love, I, they are. You're, you're stuck, Lena. They're still, they're still my kids. I love them just as much, even on their worst day. Your daily faith isn't doing things for God to affirm you. Your daily faith is believing who you are, that you are actually who God says you are. Don't let your purposes drive you to an identity. Let the gospel-fueled identity that's yours in Christ drive you to your purposes. Amen? So first point, First Peter assumes the fact that only the gospel life can only come from the gospel, and we walk through that. But what is our identity in Christ? Let's go to First Peter 2, 9. He tells us, but you, who's you? Who's he talking to? Everybody say this with me. Say, that's me. That's me. All right. Who's you? The people Peter is writing to, the church, that's you. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just like John, just like Paul, Peter is reminding the church of their identity before he exhorts them to the work, right? He, is, he says at the end of this passage, hey, abstain from sin. He says at the end of this passage, guys, I want you to live such a good life among unbelievers that they see your good works and they glorify God, right? So that's work. That's what we're supposed to do. That's purpose. But he doesn't start there. He starts with their identity. And... Um, First Peter, let's walk through those. I'm going to walk through them really quickly because this section is essentially what our series is about. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on any one of these. I'm just going to uh, talk about each one. First, he says, you're a chosen people. That's family. That's family. You remember Abraham was chosen and God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I love the fact that when God calls Abraham to be a father of many nations, Abraham doesn't even have a kid right? So that's faith. That's a lot of faith in order to believe that promise. Look at what he's doing. He's given Abraham an identity before he gives him a purpose. He's calling Abraham a friend of God. He's, he's calling him a father of many nations before he ever gives him a purpose. The church is the chosen people of God, living as God's family in the world, loving God, loving one another, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. What would change if we started really seeing the church as family? I, mean, I grew up in a culture where we called each other brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. Anybody grow up in a church like that? Hey, brother Tom, how you doing today? I'm just blessed and highly favored, brother. You know. <laughs> Anybody? And you can pay lip service to the brother and sister title, but the reality of how you feel about each other can be very far from that. How, how would the world look at the church if we actually lived like family? Would we even have needs among the church if we actually believed we were family? No. In fact, that's what we see in the early church, right? Okay, I'm gonna, I don't want to preach on the whole identity. That's, another, that's a whole sermon. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. Servants, living as ministers of reconciliation. You know the word minister? You know what it uh, comes from in Greek? It's the Greek word diakonos. You know what it means? To serve. To serve. So the ministers in the church aren't the people who get served. The ministers are the people who come, just like Jesus at the Last Supper, like Kenny preached about a few weeks ago, and they get down on their knees 
and they worship God by serving the needs around them. And the Bible just doesn't, also doesn't say those guys up front on a Sunday are the ministers, right? The guys who get a paycheck from the church are the ministers. The Bible says who? You, all of us, the whole church. We are God's ministers, priests, connecting people to God and ministering sacrifices. Um, I want to talk about the temple. I'm going to skip it for time's sake. All right, number three, um, a holy nation, a nation among the nations. You know, Israel was called to be a nation that bore witness to who God was and how they lived life together. That's what we spent a whole series talking about with counterculture, being a city within the city that shows people what God's like through our life together. And that's what, that's what we want to do as, as, as people. We're a holy nation. We're, we're missionaries. We have a mission to all this stuff that we're called to, to live such good lives among them that they see our good works and they glorify God. That's a mission. Ask yourself, how much are people glorifying God by watching your life? How much are people glorifying God by looking at the way our church interacts together, our gospel communities on mission? Do they even have a window to see the way we're living out our faith together on mission? It's an important question. Let's go, uh, number four. We are a people of his own possession. What's it look like to start living more and more like your gods? Not like you're, like you're owned by God, not like you're... Not lowercase g, not like you are a God. No, like, like, like you're owned by God. What, what's it look like to live more and more that way? To be discipled in who he is and how he feels about life more and more and let God's worldview inform yours. You know, one of the, I think one of the most dangerous things that we're kind of at a schism in the church right now about is do we see, I'm, I'm ranting right now, do we see scripture through our cultural lens or do we see our culture through our scriptural lens? Are we letting God's worldview inform ours in such a way that that's how we engage culture? Or are we bringing all of our cultural stuff to the text and seeing whether or not God is gonna measure up to our level of righteousness? It's a really important, okay, anyway. So disciples, that's what that is. We're disciples, apprentices, learning more and more to live as God desires, as his people. And lastly, proclaimers of his excellency. We're called worshipers, and next week I'm going to spend a sermon talking about how all of life is worship. How everything we're doing, we're created continuously outpouring, and we're worshiping something with our lives. It may be God, it may not. What are you worshiping? So, but either way, you can't escape the fact that you're worshipers. Could you imagine what the church would look like if we took this identity that God gives us in 1 Peter 2.9 seriously and really started living that out? as a family on mission to bring glory to God, to make disciples, to serve one another and serve the world around us. That's the church. That's what we're called to be. In fact, I would say this, that's who we are. In any area of our life that doesn't look like that is because we're not really believing that we are who God says we are. Our identity is being informed by a lot of other stuff. How many of us are our identity informed by our past, like Kenny was talking about in worship and what we've done? We carry around that guilt and shame. How many of us are our identities 
being informed by what other people say about us or by what we think other people say about us. I remember um, one of my favorite passages of scripture because it's so heartbreaking. This is, I'm sorry, I'm just way off my notes, but I'm just gonna go with it. Um, the children of Israel, they've been wandering through Egypt and they finally come to the promised land and God says to Moses, go in, take it, it's yours. But Moses sends spies. You guys remember this story? And they go into the promised land and they see the giants. Yeah, they see the honey, they see the grapes, they see all that stuff, but they also see the giants and they come back and they say, guys, we can't take it. And here's what they say. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. So what was informing their identity? Was it what God said about them or what somebody else did? What, I just want to admonish you right now. Don't let what other people think of you be more loud in your heart and in your ears and in your mind than what God says about you. Don't let what people, don't have grasshopper mentality. Don't see yourself through all of their lenses. See yourself as, as who God sees you as. Otherwise, our lives will be limited. Where do we get the power for this? Third point. And the answer, I think, is in this, this cornerstone imagery. I'm going to read this last pas- uh, passage here. Um, and I want to suggest how important this is to all of us. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now you who believe, to you who believe this stone is precious. What, what's he talking about? He's talking about this. You gotta understand in this culture, there's some of you guys that, that do construction and building here. In this culture, the way you built a building was you had a cornerstone. And the cornerstone was the most important part of a building. Cornerstone was these perfect right angles. And it set, the, it set the foundation and set the direction the whole building was going. If you had a strong cornerstone that was made of the right material, that's why it was so precious, because it was the most expensive part of the building you were building. If you had the right cornerstone, everything else held in place. But if you had a weak cornerstone, a wobbly one, one that was cracked, everything fall, fell apart. Are we tracking? So Peter likens Jesus to this cornerstone. Why is Jesus called a cornerstone? I think there's three reasons. First of all, Jesus must be your cornerstone. He must be the foundation of your life. That's one of the things this image is getting across. Jesus says a couple of times in, in Matthew 7 and in Luke, he says, um, the foolish person builds their house on the sand, but the wise person builds their house on the rock, right? And then what's he say? He says, the rock, the foundation, the firm foundation is the words that I'm giving you. So Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation, is the cornerstone that we build our lives on. And everything else is shifting sand. And there's a lot of us that have our identities and our lives built up partially on Jesus and part on the sand. And what happens when the storms and the rains come? No bueno, right? No bueno. So some of us have our marriages built not fully on the gospel. They're built partially on the gospel. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he said, um, he's a businessman, husband, um, in another church, and he was saying, dude, I had this realization that when things go bad for me in business, 
I start to freak out. My wife has to come to me and say, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. Don't fret. Don't worry. You know, that whole thing. Um, and he said, but I noticed something else. For her, it's the kids. Whenever She doesn't care about business. She doesn't care about money, security. She just totally trusts God with that. But anything goes wrong with the kids, she freaks out. And I come to her and say, oh, honey, baby, it's going to be okay. You know, I don't know if he said honey, baby. That's kind of weird. That's, but whatever he said, you guys are tracking, right? And he said, I realized that even, even though we're both believers, our lives aren't firmly built on the foundation of Jesus. My life is built on the foundation of security and money and control, and hers is built on kids and how they're turning out. And, and are we tracking? Yeah. yeah. It's so important that our lives are built on who Jesus is and what he says about us. So the point is, we're never going to become unshakable rocks ourselves the living stones that God calls us to be unless Jesus is the foundation of your life. You're not going to live that holy life. You're not going to share the gospel with people without fear. You're not going to give away until it hurts. You're not going to be effective in people's lives or or be changing people's lives, not unless Jesus is the cornerstone of your life. So unless, unless you have him as the cornerstone, you're going to be shakable when the storms and the rains come. But if you have Jesus as the cornerstone, you'll be unshakable. You'll, you'll not struggle with anxiety. You'll not struggle with fear. You're not going to be consumed by your career. You're not going to be overwhelmed by your worries. How can he become the cornerstone? Point two. Secondly, this image gets across the fact that Jesus Christ must be precious to you. Um, I love chocolate. And have any of you guys had Eclipse chocolate? Local company, really good. A little plug for Eclipse here. In case you're listening, send me free chocolate. Okay. <laughs> Here's the problem. After I had Eclipse, it ruined me. I started eating, uh, I, I, one of my kids had Halloween candy and I opened a, a Hershey's bar and I tasted it and it was like wax. Was like, what is it? Good chocolate ruins you. You ever have it? Um, sometimes, I, I used to play djembe a lot. I love playing djembe. And back in the early days of this church, we had this small woodhead djembe. So it was wood, and I would, I would play on it, and it was, it was all I knew. It was great. And then one day, somebody from the church was like, hey, I'm going to invest in a better djembe for us. And I was like, better djembe? We're doing great. What are you talking about? And then we got that djembe. And I was like, oh, boom, boom. And I'm getting all these dynamics off the top. And it was amazing. If you're a musician, you understand. It's like just, oh, it was a whole new world. And I remember I had to go play this gig with Kenny, and I took the wooden djembe, and I was like, never again. My knuckles hurt for like an hour afterwards. I was like, why am I hitting this thing? It's horrible. When we find something that's better, it puts everything else that we've been used to to shame. We tracking? When you come into the presence of superlatives, it ruins you. Nothing else charms you. All the vain things that charmed me most, all the things that controlled my life are worthless. It's not enough for Jesus to just be somebody you believe in. He must become precious to you. Is he? Is Jesus precious to you? Is he ravishing to you? Is he so beautiful, so fetching, so endearing, so amazing to you that, that nothing else can capture your attention? That's why we're shakable. That's why we're not rocks ourselves. That's why we're not related to Jesus. He's not the foundation of our life. That's why we're no good, really. That's why we're too anxious and too absorbed in all our own problems to be agents of change in everybody else's life. Because Jesus isn't precious to us. Well, how has he become that precious? How does he become like that? This way. He was rejected. That's what the verse says. I'll close with this. 
Jesus was rejected. He was the stone that the builders rejected. Now, now who are the builders? A lot of people say it's the, it's the religious elite, the religious leaders. And when Peter quotes, quotes this, I want, I want you to know that Peter was not just thinking about the fact that religious leaders rejected Christ and put him on the cross. What does Peter's name mean? The rock. Yet when the big storms came, when Jesus was arrested, when identifying with Jesus could get you arrested too, maybe killed. When it counted, Peter wasn't the rock that he, Jesus had called him. Peter gave way. Peter chickened out. Peter denied Jesus three times. And yet at the end of the Gospel of John that records Peter denying him three times, at the very end in John 21, Jesus gets Peter alone on a beach. And what's he do? He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And all three times he says, yes, yes, yes. Then feed my sheep, lead my sheep. Do you know what Jesus is doing there? He's calling Peter back to his identity. He's reminding him of who he is. He says, I want you to be this ministry leader. I want you to shepherd my flock. And Peter must have been saying in his heart, dude, you've got the wrong guy. You're crazy, Jesus. I'm not a rock. I'm quicksand. I'm nothing. I gave in. I walked away. I turned my back on you. How could you be making me a minister of the gospel? How could you be asking me to live out this identity? I obviously can't do it. I failed. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, Peter, don't you understand that nothing makes you better equipped? Nothing makes you more effective at changing other people's lives than your failures plunged into my grace. The bigger a failure, the more experience you have with the gospel healing you. The more you're going to be able to help other people change, the more sensitive you're gonna to be to the needs around you, the more kind you're gonna be, the more merciful, the more you're going to be able to care for people's hearts. The more you'll be free to share the good news with people, the more you're gonna be living out of your gospel identity. He says, you failed more than any other disciple. That's why I'm making you the shepherd. And I can relate to Peter so much because I look at my own life and I just... Man, I'm such a screw-up sometimes. There are so many things I'm... Kenny was talking today, and he was saying, hey, some of you guys have a load of shame and guilt. And I was like, oh, yeah, right here. I don't know if you know this, but pastor sin. There's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and what happens if I find my identity in that? then I either have to lie and hide it and cover it up or I, and lie to myself in the process or it crushes me. It destroys me, my brokenness, my sin, my anger, my frustrations, the way I handle things. But in the gospel, I find the freedom I need because yeah, in the gospel it says I'm more broken than I even want to believe about myself actually if I start peeling back those layers in my heart of brokenness and despair, I'm going to find even deeper layers of brokenness and despair. I'm more broken than I even want to admit, but at the same time, because of what Christ has done, I'm more loved and accepted. Beloved, right now we are children of God, 
It's in the gospel that we have an identity that can hold us through the storms of life. That can help us not see ourselves in light of our works on our best day or our worst day, but in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. Look at Jesus dying on the cross for you. and That will make it precious to you. Will you close your eyes with me? That will make Jesus your foundation when you see his love for you outstretched on the cross, inviting you to come near and receive his grace. To receive an identity that will be unshakable, to build your life on the foundation of the good news of Jesus Christ. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we could become the very righteousness of God. That will free you to live more like a family of missionary servants who make disciples for God's glory. This world, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers are waiting for you to be what God's called you to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us this great call, this summons. And we ask that right now, as we meet over your table, that you'd make yourself real to us so we could be empowered to be who you've called us to be in a world where everyone else is defined by so many other things. Free us from the lies. Free us from the things that we've built our identities on. Over these next few weeks, I pray that you would call us back to build our lives, not on the shifting sand of cultural opinions, not on the shifting sand of our good days and bad days, but on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ and his gospel as the cornerstone for our life. I pray you would call us to root our identity deeply into you so that we could bear the fruit with our lives that you're calling us to bear. We need you for this. We know that we can't do it on our own. Holy Spirit, I pray right now, I pray right now in this moment that you would help us to see Jesus Christ on the cross in our place, condemned, so that we could have life and that we would see Jesus Christ resurrecting and bursting forth from a grave three days later, conquering all the things that drive us away from you, the fears, the guilt, the shame, and leaving them behind and walking in new life. And I pray that you would, in the good news of the gospel, free our hearts to trust in you. Help us to see you on the cross and behold you as precious to us, as superlative, as the most beautiful thing we've ever seen so that we would build our lives on you and find the rock-solid life and identity that you have waiting for us, that, you, that is actually true of us right now if we're in Christ. We can't do it on our own, Holy Spirit. We need you, but awaken our hearts as we sing, as we take communion, as we pray together. Have your way in us over the next few moments, next few weeks, in Jesus' name.